Amen. Well, good morning again. If you would go back to John chapter 21. We'll be back in John chapter 21 this morning. John chapter 21, and we will pick up in verse 9 where we left off last week. John chapter 21, beginning in verse 9. Hear the word of the living God. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So Father, one more time, we ask You to come and by Your Word, overcome unbelief, Lord. Just as You overcame the unbelief of these disciples, overcome our unbelief that we would love You and adore You and come to You. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Last week, we took up the first eight verses of this narrative and we sort of laid the context and we got into some of the Johanian themes that we've seen throughout the gospel over the last few years. And we looked at the parallel in this passage back to Luke chapter 5. And we saw that those passages really share some significant things. And, and we saw a few other things, but the primary theme that we saw last week in the first half of the narrative is that the disciples still need to learn something about life after Jesus' resurrection. And not only do they need to learn it, they need to learn how to settle into it. They need to learn how to settle into this new way of life as the new normal. Because in many ways, their lives would remain the same. They still need food for sustenance. Right? Uh, Jesus doesn't turn them into super men. He doesn't take away their natural uh, bodily limitations. Uh, They still need to sleep. Some of them have wives and children to care for. And despite what seems to be their belief in Acts 1, that the kingdom of God was about to come and be fully consummated on the earth, uh, this just was not going to happen. Uh, There's going to be this long period of time where Jesus came in His first coming and His resurrection and His ascension. And this long period of time before He would come back again. And and they were filled with resurrection power. They had the privilege of having communion and fellowship with the resurrected Christ. His Spirit would indwell them. And enable them to be godly. Enable them to go forth in resurrection power and do incredible things. Yet, in many ways, their lives would be very ordinary. And they needed to learn how to settle into that reality. And Jesus, through this failed fishing trip, 
uh, teaches his disciples how they need to relate to him and how they need to rely on him if their lives are going to bear the fruit that he intends them to bear on the earth for the kingdom of God. And I would encourage you uh, to go back and listen to that sermon if you missed it. But this morning, I want to finish the narrative and I want to focus on the same exact theme. And there are a couple of reasons for that. Number one, just at a practical level, uh, it's one narrative, right? So it makes sense that the themes are are the same. Most preachers try to just do the whole narrative in one sermon. I just thought we're going to miss too much if we do that. So we're breaking it into two. Uh, But number two, and, and this is vital for us as disciples of Jesus Christ to get, we live post resurrection, right? We live post-resurrection. Uh, we are, and we are to live our lives in light of that incredible event. We are to live our lives in light of the fact that the Son of God, the Lord of glory, came down, was crucified, buried, and that He's been raised from the dead ascended into heaven and given us His Spirit so that we are to go forth in that resurrection power and proclaim His resurrection and bear fruit for the kingdom of God. Yet, at the very same time, we do this largely in the midst of what seem to be very ordinary lives. We do. Uh, Like Peter, when he launched himself into the sea to go after his Lord, uh, we know we are to forsake all to follow Christ. We are to abandon our old way of life and pursue Him with a relentless abandonment that says, I don't care what I'm leaving behind. I forsake it all to follow Him. Yet, we do that in the midst of continuing to live life in this world. And we have jobs that we go to every day. And we wake up at the same time every day with the same family, the same routine. Uh, We pay the same bills on the same house. And we go through the same normal rhythms and patterns of life with this abandonment to our former, former ways of thinking. We get married, we have children, we budget for vacations, we grow a garden, we support local businesses, we enjoy sports teams, all at the same time knowing this world is not my home. And we are to live in light of eternity. And there's some tension there, isn't there? There really is. There's some tension there that we all feel. At one level, we know that we are exiles, merely passing through this world. That this world is not our home and that we should have our eyes on eternity. Yet at another level, we need to settle in to life in this world. And we need to live peaceful and quiet lives for the glory of God. Uh, At one level, we are supernatural creatures called to produce supernatural results. Yet at another level, we are not yet glorified. We are frail And we are weak. And when we look at our lives, they don't seem very supernatural oftentimes, do they? They seem very ordinary. Even those who do missions or other kinds of work that seem to be fully focused on the kingdom of God spend many of their days in the ordinary rhythms of life. And this is even more so the case for us than the apostles because they would go to do many extraordinary things, wouldn't they? 
They would preach. They would write scripture. They would do miracles. Peter's shadow was raising people up on the street. Their lives were very extraordinary. They lived in an unusual time in history. They were eyewitnesses of Christ's resurrection. They were inspired of the Spirit to perform miracles and preach and write Scripture and hand it down to us. Yet, as the New Testament progresses, I think you see a tapering off of this display of just supernatural, extraordinary power. And it seems that the church is to, to, to settle into what life will be like as a supernatural organization with supernatural uh, fruit that they need to bear, with a supernatural message in a world where they're not at home. We are to settle into a normal pattern of living and existing in a world without forsaking our heavenly identity and calling and Spirit-empowered witness. And it's interesting that as the apostles get to the end of their lives, new apostles don't raise up, do they? They die. And what happens? They raise up elders to lead the churches. And they ordain elders to stand on their word. And they raise up deacons to serve in an official capacity in the churches. And so the church is to be governed by elders and served by deacons as they bear the burdens of the church. And the elders in the New Testament don't seem to be miracle workers. They don't write Scripture. Except for James. After the original, the elders of the churches don't write authoritative Scripture. They stand on the apostolic word, but they largely live very ordinary lives. One of the qualifications is they need to manage their homes well. They have wives. They have children. They need to be respectful, meaning they probably work in the community. This is really interesting. Uh, this is a time in history, this is the time in history in which we exist. And just like we saw last week, there are some lessons here in the remainder of this narrative that are vital for us to see if we are going to live faithfully post-resurrection. And so if last week was life after the resurrection part one, uh, this week is life after the resurrection part Two, and I want to walk us through the rest of this narrative, and I, I trust that the Lord will minister to us as we see His Word. So beginning in verse 9, it says, When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. So the first thing we see is this, and it is absolutely vital, brothers and sisters. Though He is the resurrected Lord of glory, Jesus Christ will still serve His people post-resurrection. Remember the scene. These seven disciples under Peter's leadership decide they're going to go fishing. And they fish all night. And they toil all night and they catch nothing. Not one fish. And then Jesus comes and appears to them on the shore and yells at them and tells them to throw the net on the right side of the boat. They do that. And immediately they have a net full of fish. And John, seeing with the eyes of his spirit, sees that the man on the shore, a hundred yards away, when the sun is coming up, is the Lord. It has to be the Lord. And Peter hears that it's the Lord, and he throws himself into the sea and pursues the Lord. And then 
the others follow after Peter in the boat, dragging this net full of fish to the shore, undoubtedly full of joy because the Lord had come to them and rescued them from this terrifying night in this fruitless endeavor. And he blessed them with a net full of fish and showed them again for the third time, I am raised from the dead. No one is going to take me from you. And I will come to you whenever I want. And they were full of joy. Yet, when they get to the shore, what do they find? They find that there is already fish and bread being prepared for them. And I think there are some vital lessons that the Lord wants to teach His disciples here. Uh, First, He wants to teach them that He will provide for them. He will take care of them, even down to their need to eat. He shows them that even if they didn't catch anything, He can provide food. He can provide what they need for them. Because before they contribute any of the fish, Jesus has already prepared breakfast for them. Uh, This reminds us of Elijah. Remember back in 1 Kings 17 when the Lord commands the ravens to feed Elijah as he's there on the brook. And then when the brook dries up, the Lord ordains a widow to provide food and water for Elijah. And then remember later, when Elijah runs from Jezebel and his life, he, he, he is just so sorrowful over his life and his state that he wants to die. He's crying out to the Lord, take my life. And so he falls to sleep and, and the angel of the Lord wakes him up and says, arise and eat. And the Bible says there's a cake baked on hot stones It's an interesting parallel. Charcoal fire and hot stones. And a jar of water there for him. The Lord provided for him. And no doubt, this would have reminded the disciples of the wilderness narratives where Jesus feeds the multitudes. He did this twice in their lives. However, in those narratives, Jesus multiplies the fish and the bread and gives it to the disciples and they distribute it. Yet here, It says in verse 13, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, Jesus provides directly for His disciples. The disciples needed to learn this. And oh, brothers and sisters, we need to learn this. Just as the Lord provided for Elijah during the time of famine, Uh, just as He provided for these disciples after a long night of unsuccessful fishing, the Lord will provide for His people in spite of a recession, in spite of the circumstances seeming dire, in spite of work being scarce, in spite of leadership not making great financial decisions, Jesus will provide for His people exactly what they need. He said back in Matthew 6.33, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. And listen, brothers and sisters, our ministry, uh, our witness in the world, both individually and corporately as a church, will be hindered if we do not get this. Because in times in life when the fish aren't coming, If we don't believe this, if we don't trust in the Lord to provide, we will get anxious, we will act in all sorts of worldly ways, and we will get our minds off the mission. 
And we will, live in very, we will live very earthly lives. And obviously, the Lord has called us to provide for ourselves through very ordinary means. To make a living for ourselves. But we should approach those normal means, brothers and sisters, knowing that Jesus Christ has provided salvation. And if He has provided salvation, He will provide every need abundantly. And when it doesn't seem like He can or that there's no resources, He can provide supernaturally. Where do you think He got this fish and bread? Do we see Jesus fishing? He provided for it miraculously like only He can. And there's another lesson here I think Jesus wants His disciples to learn. And it's this, even though Jesus has been raised from the dead, they still must come to Him continually and let Him serve them before they can serve anyone else. Before they serve, they must be served. Before they minister on behalf of Christ, they have to sit at Christ's table and eat. We've seen this before, haven't we? Remember back in John 13 at the Last Supper when Jesus stoops down to wash the disciples' feet. Remember what Peter says? You shall never wash my feet. And what does the Lord say? If I do not wash you, you shall have no share with me. Then later, after He's washed all their feet, He goes on to say, just as I've done to you, you go and do to each other. As I've served you, you go unserved. But first, in order to be qualified to serve others, they had to be served by Him. And they had to willfully let Him wash their feet. It's become very clear that apart from Him, they will bear no fruit. But if they abide in Him, if they rely on Him, and commune with Him, if they obey His commands, He will bring an abundance of fish into their net. He will use them to turn the world upside down. To lay the foundation of the church. To see thousands come to know the Lord. To perform miracles and signs and wonders. But they must do it knowing that apart from Him, they can do nothing. And they are not special in terms of their nature. These are not supermen. They are sinful men who have been served by a perfect God. And chosen to be used. And the more they realize this, the more they let Him serve them, the more faithful they are able to be as servants to each other and to the world. And some of us guys, we have grown up in religious settings that have presented to us such a what can you do for Christ mentality. That, that to consider that I have to be served by Him is offensive to us. Just like it was offensive to Peter. And there's a, there's a humility that's required to say, I have to be washed by the Lord of glory or I can't do anything for Him. This is how we relate to Him. Yes, we're bondservants. Yes, we're slaves. Yes, we are, joyful. we are to joyfully obey Him. We are to give our lives for His name's sake. But we are to do it saying that unless we first come to Him, 
with our hands wide open saying, Lord, every need I have can only be sufficiently met in you. Augustus, top lady, understood this sentiment well and he captured it in that hymn that we sing so often, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. And brothers and sisters, because of our sin nature, we long to get things done. We long to be self-sufficient. We long to let our performance get the job done. This is a fight. One of the the most difficult continual fights in my life is to say, stop doing all the stuff. Put it away. Stop trying to be self-sufficient. Stop trying to be efficient. Stop trying to get everything done. You can't come to Jesus. Come and have breakfast with Him. Let the One who can do something about your problems serve you. He will nourish you. He will feed you. He will wash you. He will meet every need you have if you will come to Him. Some of you still have not learned this. And your souls are suffering greatly. You rise day after day burdened over your sins. Burdened over the way you feel emotionally. Burdened over the state of your life. Burdened by your lack of progress. But you have not learned how to come to the Lord humbly with your Bible open saying, Lord, You're the only one that can do anything about my problem. Fix me. Wash me. Serve me. What do you have to say? I'll do it. But you have something for me that I cannot get for myself. Letting Him do in your heart and life what only He can do by His Spirit through His Word. And you keep yourself from the Lord when He's calling out to you, come and have breakfast. Some of you still have not learned how to come to Jesus daily to find pardon from your sins. And so you live life under a burdened, guilty conscience constantly. And it wears on you. And it it manifests itself in your body. And you're not happy with where you are. But you keep trying to clean yourself up rather than coming to Him for pardon through confession and repentance. And you say, well, I don't feel like Jesus wants me to come to Him. Well, look at this. This is incredible. It says they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish on it. Where's the last time we see a charcoal fire in the Gospel of John? Anybody know? John chapter 18. Let me read what it says. It was cold, and the servants and temple police had made a charcoal fire. They were warming themselves around it when Peter went over and stood near the fire to warm himself. It would be that as he was warming himself over that charcoal fire, that Peter would deny his Lord. And the rooster would crow. And I don't want to get into this much because next week, Lord willing, John Mark will get into Peter's 
restoration. But consider this. Here after the resurrection, Jesus sets the scene of His restoration with Peter and nourishes His weary body before ultimately restoring His weary soul by cooking breakfast for Him on the same kind of fire that was once the occasion for Peter's most grievous sin. How merciful is our Lord. How gracious is our Lord. How kind is our Lord. He knows exactly what we need. He knows exactly how to restore us. Exactly how to wash us. Exactly how to cleanse us from the sin. How to best minister to us. You know, what could have been better for these men in their confused, scared state after a long night of toil than a hot breakfast prepared for them by their Lord. What could have been better? He doesn't rebuke them or get angry with them, but rather He lets them contribute what they have to the breakfast. Look at verse 10. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Notice He doesn't say, bring some of the fish that I just made you catch. Bring some of the fish I made swim into the net. No, he says, bring the fish you just caught. Wait a minute. They fished all night and didn't catch anything, right? It wasn't until Jesus showed up and told them, throw the net into the right side, that the net fills up with fish. So we could easily say that Jesus caught the fish, right? Yes, we could. However, they did go fishing. And they did throw the net into the water. And they did haul the net in and bring it to the shore. They actually contributed to this catch. And so although they cannot catch anything apart from Jesus, they do play a vital role. And He's teaching them something. I'm going to be the one catching men in just a few weeks, but you're going to have a major part to play in it. You're going to preach. You're going to do miracles. You're going to write Scripture. You're going to lead the church. What's the point? Jesus is teaching His disciples that while He will produce the supernatural results and while they can do nothing apart from Him, He will work through them to do it. And their contribution will be meaningful. They will actually do ministry. They will actually have to give effort. They will have to pray. Peter's up on that roof praying when he gets the vision about the animals and the Gentiles. They will have to preach. They will have to not be afraid. There's a, there's a synergistic way in which the Lord will bring about supernatural kingdom results in the earth. It flabbergasts most of us why the Lord would choose to use us but He does. And it's for His glory. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us at all. But He chooses by His grace to use us very powerfully for His kingdom. Verse 11, So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not Torn. Now John says that these are large fish and there's 153 of them. So if they're two pounds apiece, which is probably a low estimate, this net weighs over 300 pounds. 
And Peter, presumably by himself, grabs the net and hauls it through the water onto the shore. Now, I don't, this is just an aside. I don't think this is the most important point, but it's worth pointing out. Peter is fit. He's in shape. Uh, it, it, he's a man of great physical fitness. Remember, he just swam a hundred yards to get to the Lord, and he's dragging this huge net full of fish to the shore. While the kingdom of heaven requires spiritual work and supernatural spiritual warfare, and while the weapons of our, of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, and we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and all of this, we know this. While all of that is true, we do labor for the kingdom of God in the body. Right? We're not apparitions floating around doing supernatural things one minute and then bodies the next minute. We do the work in the body. And so we need to steward our bodies, it seems, for maximum benefit for the kingdom. Now, uh, there has been no shortage of discussion about the significance of the number 153. Uh, all throughout church history, theologians and preachers have offered various uh, interpretations. If you're interested in that, you can go read all of those. Uh, on your own time. I don't want to get into those. Uh, I'll just quote Carson. He says, if the evangelist does have some hidden meaning in mind, he's hidden it well. All right. Uh, the text just doesn't seem to give any indicators that we're to take that number 153 and do anything with it. it and it's completely understandable that they would have counted these fish. Imagine if you go fishing, you count the fish. You want to know how successful your day is, especially Knowing how they got the fish, they would have wanted to count them, to know, to be able to tell people. And this gives credibility to John as an eyewitness account. But I do think that there are some theological proposals here uh, in this detail that I want to put before you. And I think they have warrant in the Gospel of John. So let me give you a few of those. Uh, the first one is this. And for some of you, this will not be controversial at all. For some of you, this will absolutely wreck the way you think about God. And if that's you, I want you to take this and consider it and pray about it and put it before the lens of Scripture and see if it is so. Jesus knows the exact number of people that He will bring into His kingdom. The exact number. Not a round number. Not close to number. 153, that seems like an odd number, right? What could it be saying to us? He knows exactly who and how many He's going to bring into this apostolic net in all of the church age. Remember, Jesus told the disciples way back in the beginning, they were fishers, they're going to be fishers of men. This is ultimately for the apostles about evangelism. It's about the mission they're about to go do. They're about to fish for men. And he's teaching them about fishing for men through a fishing trip. He's going to ascend into heaven and pour out the Spirit upon them for ministry. And the Lord is going to start filling this net with men in just a few days. This shouldn't be controversial. It should actually lead us to great comfort. Why? Because these disciples are going to be arrested. They're going to be opposed. The Jews are going to absolutely oppose their ministry. They're all going to be killed, except one of them. 
And they need to know that this, these fish are going to last. We're not going to labor for years and years and years for the fish to just fall out of the net. And we're not going to labor not knowing whether we're going to actually have any results. No, there is a number of people that the Lord has sovereignly loved before eternity. And He's called them to receive salvation. And they will receive it. Everyone whom He has appointed unto salvation will hear the Gospel message and respond to it genuinely unto salvation. And He's told us this already. It makes perfect sense when we look back at John 10, 14, 16 when Jesus says, I am the Good Shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay my life down for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. You hear Jesus' certainty. He knows who are His. He knows them and He knows that they will hear His voice. And they won't listen to the devil's voice. They'll listen to His voice. And they will respond to Him from all over the world. And they will come into this fold where He will be the shepherd and where they will be the fold. And He knows them before it happens. Another thing I think could be happening here, uh, this specific number of sheep or fish will come into the net through the apostolic word. The apostles will catch the fish. The apostles will write the Scripture. The apostles will build the church. And everyone who comes in will come in through this apostolic witness. Jesus gives the Gospel to His apostles. And through their preaching and their writing of Scripture, everyone who comes in will come in through believing their testimony. Listen to how Jesus prays for them in John 17, 20 and 21. He says, I do not ask for these only, the apostles, but he says, but also for those who will believe in me, how? Through their word. Not just for them, but those who will come after them and believe in me through their word. It's through the word of the apostles that others will come into this fold, come into the church. And lastly, no one that Jesus brings in through this apostolic word and brings them into the apostolic net will fall out of the net. And that net won't break. It says in verse 11, although there were so many, the net was not torn. So not only does Jesus have the power to bring the fish into the net, he has the power to keep them in the net. And He has the power to keep the net from breaking. He has a people that He's going to bring into His kingdom and He will keep them. In the same way that they don't lose the fish as they drag the net to shore to the shore to Jesus, they won't have to worry about laboring to catch men only for the men to fall away before they get to Jesus. 
He says in John 15, 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. And that fruit, the fruit that Jesus is going to work through them, is going to be lasting fruit. And just by way of encouragement, as you're reading this, brothers and sisters, it's probably best not to immediately view yourself and identify with the apostles, but to identify with a fish. Because you are a fish that have been caught through the apostolic message, and He's brought you into this kingdom, and you don't fall out. And the net doesn't break so that we all fall out. He said in John 10.28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of My hand. No one will snatch you out of the King's hand. No one will take you out of that net if He's brought you into it. Rest in that, brother. Rest in that, sister. This scene illustrates for us through historical details of this through the historical details of this fishing experience, the nature of apostolic ministry. And as we stand on their word, we participate in their ministry. As we abide in Christ, we are likewise to fish for men and proclaim the gospel. And listen, I know it's a hard saying, but Jesus knows who are His. And He has appointed us to go catch them through preaching His word. And once they are caught, if they are truly His, they're going to remain. So when you're witnessing, when you're evangelizing, and it feels like there's no fruit, feels like you're wasting your time, just know there may be one that walks by that Jesus has called to bring into this net. His sheep will hear His voice through His Word. And once they come in, He will safely guard them and safely deliver them into the kingdom of His Father on the final day. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared ask Him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. They still have all kinds of questions. They don't yet have a full grasp on the resurrection. They still think the kingdom's about to come in fully. Right? They're confused. But one thing they now know with so much certainty that they will not even ask. It's the Lord. He's, he's, he's with us. He's not chained by death. It's not just the Spirit appearing here and there. It's the Lord. And He's come to us. And He's come to us these three times according to verse 14. Meaning, He's with us for good. He's not going to leave us or forsake us. He's not going to get taken from us like He did the first time. He's actually with us forever. And they're realizing this. And this realization results in a joy that absolutely no one and no circumstance can take from them. It's clear to them at this point. No one can take their Lord for them, from them. Thus, no one can take their joy from them. This is everything the Lord has been teaching them. 
up until this point. Of all the lessons that we see in this narrative about life after the resurrection, this may be the most central one. Uh, that their Lord laid down His life and took it up again so that they could be with Him forever. And be with His Father forever. And that they could come to the Father whenever they wish. In whatever circumstance they're in. And ask the Father anything they wish in His name and it will be done for them. As Jesus went on to teach them in John 16, I think this is a a direct uh, fulfillment of this prophecy. He says, In that day you will ask nothing of Me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in My name, He will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in My name. Ask and you will receive. Why? That your joy may be full. They are settling into this reality uh, that Jesus, their Lord, will always be with them. And, And because He's always with them, they can come to the Father in His name by the power of the Spirit and ask for anything they wish. And the Father will hear them. And He will give them what they ask for. And this results in a fullness of joy that never ceases. There are so many needs in this room. Some of you have issues and struggles with sin that you're struggling to overcome. Some of you have relational problems that are very, very difficult. Marriage problems, family problems. Some of you have physical problems. Perhaps the biggest need for some of you is financial. There there are so many needs represented in just this little small room. And yet, Jesus, the Lord of glory, has the power to meet every single one of them according to how He sees fit best. And you can come to Him with that need and spread it before Him and lay the burden at His feet. And He hears you. And His Father hears you. And you can ask anything according to His will by faith in Jesus Christ and it will be done for you. And whether your life seems to have a daily impact on the kingdom of God, or whether right now your life seems to be very ordinary and you're struggling to see how it has any significance for the kingdom of God, this narrative shows us something very important. Jesus, like I said earlier, does not need us to advance His kingdom. But He graciously chooses to use us as instruments by which He does advance and build His kingdom. And He has good works predestined for each and every one of us. For us to walk in. And His Father is glorified when we abide in Him and bear much fruit. He wants to bear fruit through us. He wants us to be successful in the kingdom. It says the Father is glorified when we do this and prove to be His disciples. And in the midst of this life where there is tension between living a life totally abandoned and fulfilling the ordinary duties and rhythms of this life. In the midst of that tension, we must remember that the Lord has been raised from the dead and that He has come to His people and that He abides with His people by the indwelling presence of the Spirit that He has graciously poured out on all of His people 
and that our bodies are temples of the Holy Ghost and that we have access to the Father by faith through Jesus Christ anytime we want, anytime we need, anytime the pressures of life are so overwhelming, sin is so difficult, the struggles are so insurmountable, we can come to the Father and commune with Him and lay these things down at His feet. And no one can take that from us, brothers and sisters. And no one can take our joy from us because Jesus has been raised and He defeated death and hell. And I want to call you to seek the Lord Jesus. There's nothing hindering you if you're in Christ. That, that curtain has been torn in the flesh of Christ Your sin has been removed. God sees you as His Son. Sees you clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Sees you you as His Son. As a Son. There is nothing stopping you from entering in with confidence to the throne of grace. And I want to call us as a church to seek the Lord. Let's lay aside trying trying to deal with our sin in our own fleshly nature. Let's lay aside bearing the burdens that we shouldn't be bearing. Let's lay aside walking around with a guilty conscience. He's provided a fount of forgiveness through His blood that is available to us whenever we call upon Him. Let's seek Him. Let's pursue Him. And there's no better place to start, as I said last week, than at His table. And so if you're a believer... In the Lord Jesus Christ, you've called upon His name and you've been baptized. Uh, Please come to the table and commune with Him by faith with us and take the supper with us. And if not, we would ask you to sit in your seat and consider your life. Consider your stance before a holy God. Perhaps your greatest need today is to be saved is to be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you would want to talk about that, I would love to talk with you after the service. So take a few moments there to yourselves. Renew your mind in all these truths. And when you're ready, come take the elements and return to your seat. And we'll take it together. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, what, a, what an incredible narrative. What a, what a powerful display of what life will be like post-resurrection. And we pray, Lord, that we could walk in these truths. That we would come to You. That we would abide in You. And that we would go out as Your ambassadors and preach this Gospel and see people won and brought into this net. We thank You, Lord. Please work powerfully in us in the coming days for Your namesake. We pray them in Jesus' name.